some of you that may have been looking at your watch might be a little concerned about time, so, and I knew that this would be the case. So we want to hear the testimony of what's going on around the world, and so I mentally thought to myself, I want to keep it a tight 40 minutes this week. So, And if you believe that, you haven't been tracking my times. So I'm not that long. So as we begin this morning, though, we're rounding out a sermon series, and I want to begin with an uh, uh, article from the Babylon Bee, your trusted source for Christian satire. Uh, the title of this short article is Churchgoer Arrives Five Days Early to Claim Favorite Seat. <laughs> Churchgoer Randy Atwill arrived to Porter Avenue Baptist Church five days before the Sunday service started in order to save his favorite seat, sources confirmed. Atwell pulled into the parking lot at 8 a.m. sharp Tuesday, securing an excellent parking spot before strolling into the sanctuary and plopping down in his favorite location, to leave no doubt that no one else would be able to claim it before Sunday service. Pulling out a portable TV and small personal generator, the 30-year-old man then settled in to watch the entire Left Behind series on repeat as he waited for the Sunday morning to arrive five days later. I've got a ca my casserole for the potluck warming in the car. Hope it'll keep, Atwell told a group of reporters gathered around his pew. At publishing time, another church member had arrived for the same seat. Atwell was Atwell while Atwell was in the restroom. And after he claimed that a Bible, TV, and generator were insufficient for saving seats, a brawl broke out between the two, which had to be broken up by the janitor. <laughs> of course, this is satire, right? This didn't really happen. And, and as I read that uh, recently, I, I thought to myself, and even this morning we sang, you have no rival, but doesn't, seem, it, doesn't it seem quite often like uh, we're not really that excited about what he's excited about. There are a lot of things that try and steal our attention away from the things of truth, from the things of God, constantly. Would, would it be that we'd have such excitement about God? And I know that my attention gets stolen away constantly, constantly from the things of God. And, and as we conclude then this sermon series that we're in, we've been talking about first. Uh, we've been talking about the first king of Israel, King Saul, exclusively through the book of First Samuel. You find him in other uh, books of the Old Testament, but I wanted to look at him in one narrative and do a character study this summer. And we've done that. We didn't dig into every story. We dug into some significant stories of his life. And now we've ended last week and this week where we've looked a bit at the legacy that's there of Saul. So we've expanded beyond 1 Samuel in doing that. But the question that sat behind the whole series really is who rules your world? Who rules your life? We didn't ask it overtly many times, but who rules your life? For Saul, it was quite obvious that obedience to himself was what took precedence over obedience to God. Over and over again, he illustrated this with his actions. He looked like he followed God, but he really followed his own way. Time and again, who rules your life? Saul answers the question for us in his life. And we're struck with this character assessment then and putting our character against him. Am I the same way? That's what we were doing this summer. Now today, we're going to skip forward to the book of Acts and we're going to make a connection to the bigger story of Israel's story that also impacts us of our story of salvation and coming to salvation. And I just want to make this clarification that now we have two names that are very similar and confusing to one another, but they're a thousand years apart. We talked about King Saul. Now we're going to talk about the Saul of the New Testament who lived a thousand years later and we call the Apostle 
Paul, confusing enough. He didn't change his name as far as we can understand simply because he converted. He did it because it, was more, it made more sense when he reached out to the Gentiles to use a Greekified name, Paul. Just like when I've gone to Mexico, Evan sometimes was hard to say, so I just used Juan. Yes, they're connected. I can tell you later. Now, as we look today then at Acts 13, which is where we're going to be digging in, Um, I want to just give you the point straight away, and that's God's work for your best frees you to work for God's best. So God's freeing us up in the act of salvation to bring us into his presence so that we can do his kingdom work. And we're kind of in the middle of that whole equation of being freed up with sort of personal salvation, if you will, for what is greater than simply saving an individual life, but the kingdom of God. And what it all amounts to. God's work for your best frees you to do God's best. And we run into Paul then in Acts 13. We heard the story this morning in Pisidian Antioch, a town in Galatia. And the themes that he picks up in this sermon are all picked up in the book of Galatians, as it turns out, conveniently. So if you want to get a good uh, synopsis of, of the, the depth of what Paul is saying, go to Galatians and you'll get that. And we'll, we'll end our time in Galatians with two verses at the end. But as Paul goes to Pisidian Antioch, uh, he's standing in the synagogue in what should be a fairly friendly crowd. It doesn't necessarily go his way with everybody. And he's there on the Sabbath, and he's got a crowd of people who are Jews, who know the story. They're steeped in the story. And he's got got Gentile God-fearers, people who are interested in the story, but they just haven't fully converted to Judaism. But they know the basics of the story, probably, or they study it we gather. So they're, they're clued in. And Paul is recognized as a rabbi, one who teaches, and so they say, give us a word. And what Paul gives them is what we would call the upper and the lower story at the same time. This is language that uh, a guy named Randy Frazee, a pastor in Texas, uses uh, in a, a book he's written about this idea. And it's very helpful language, I think, when we read scripture. That there's sort of a, a, an upper story of, of sort of what we might call salvation history, what God is doing in the world, uh, that it's sort of the 30,000-foot flyover. And then there's the day-to-day, the lower story, the lived-out story every day. Another way to put it, in a, in a way that uh, a guy named Kurt Willems has stated it, he says there are two stories unfold with every story in the Bible, the lower story and the upper story. The lower story is the one being written and told from a six-foot perspective, a horizontal and linear viewpoint. The upper story is the one being written and told from above, from God's perspective, a vertical, holistic viewpoint. In the lower story, we are dealing with things in the here and now, paying bills, dealing with conflict, getting over a cold, finding a job, winning a race, stubbing your toe, and what you say after you stub your toe. The lower story is our story. The upper story, in the upper story, we discover what God is up to, how he is weaving our story into his divine love story. The upper story is God's story. And you can see as Paul presents Israel's history, you can see God at work. But you see this combination of the lower story lived out in the day-to-day lives and how God is weaving that, has worked that into his upper story, the story of salvation. And so if we go to Acts 13 and start at verse 15, 
Here Paul addresses the people. It says, After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. They're doing together in the synagogue what they've done for centuries. As they've gathered together as God's people. They're reading from the law and the prophets. In so many ways, the law is is like that lower story, the lived out. How do we do this day in and day out? How do we live in God's presence, in right relationship with God? That's the law. The prophets are glimpsing at that upper story many times in a more overt way. Neither is absent from the upper and the lower story, but they both get at it in a different way. But yet they're reading this over and over. And they turn to Paul, they see that he's a teacher, and they say, Paul, expound this for us. Exhort us, encourage us, call us to the higher story, to the deep, deeper story, the depths of this. Explain why we're reading this. And do you ever come to that conclusion when you're reading scripture? Okay, I'm reading this. Why am I reading this? Do you ever have that longing for the depths of what we're reading and proclaiming together. When we gather together, when you do it day in and day out, not in a questioning, skeptical way, but God, I want the depths of what you're giving me. I want to know, do you have that longing in you this morning? They at least have some of that longing. They wonder why. Now, this was routine for them to ask for this, but there is a why behind that. Paul is able to give them a pretty deep why. Paul is able to push them towards what's happened in their midst in Jesus Christ. And he tells it by connecting the lower story with the upper story. And so Paul reminds them, he says, remember our people were in Egypt. And when we first went to Egypt, things were okay. We planted crops. We stored grain. We made it through famine. We survived, and we actually did pretty well for ourselves. But remember, when our people were in Egypt, eventually we were enslaved, and we were forced to make bricks, and it was hard, and whips were cracked. We were lost for a while in there. We felt abandoned, but God saved us. You start to see just a small connection to the upper story. He says, God saved us. And then we were brought out of the desert, led to the promised land. And we stood at the river looking across and fear and faith mingled together. We weren't sure who to trust. We knew to trust God, but we, we trusted fear all too often. But God led us into the promised land. God allowed us to cross the river. God called us to Jericho to walk around in circles and then blow the trumpets. We did that. Then we sharpened swords, we put on armor, and we conquered the land. You see the lower story lived out all the while, living out the law in this time. The lower story. We fought in faithfulness, and sometimes we failed at faithfulness. Paul tells them the story, the lower and the upper story mingling together. And Paul reminds them, do you remember God was faithful? Do you remember that when you came into the land amidst chaos, God gave you order in the form of judges? And do you remember we rebelled? Our people rebelled against God when he gave us the judges, and then we said, we want a king like everybody else. And God relented and said, okay, you get that. And we can pause for a moment here in the story, and we can recognize that that in the lower story, there's, there's a lot of imperfection. 
There's, there's a lot that doesn't always add up. There are times when it does connect to the upper story quite obviously, and there are times when it's just day-to-day life. But they did well when they saw the connection to the upper story. They did right when they saw the connection to something deeper than just we're living this out and we're just doing this because we're supposed to do this. This is just life. And we come back to the point, and we can start to connect this to our own life and begin to connect this to the deeper point. We've, we've said God's work for your best frees you to work for God's best. When they recognized that as the people of Israel, they could recognize their deeper purpose. But when they didn't, they just did the law. They just did what they were supposed to do. When we live the lower story, we're living it right now in this place. We're living it together, reading scripture, meeting together, shaking hands, having confirmation students come forward, laughing, enjoying the presence of one another, singing together. This is the lower story lived out. You're going to live the lower story when you leave this place. You're going to live the lower story on Monday when you're sitting in your office chair in front of the computer screen, when you're in the mail room picking up supplies, when you're at the bank, when you're in line at the store, when you're online at the store, when you're in the gym, when you give a compliment, when you give the opposite of a compliment, when you seek justice and when you seek chocolate, you are living the lower story. In all of those cases, you're living the lower story. But what we have to recognize is that that lower story, it matters, but it's only temporary. And it only gets its meaning and value in God's upper story when those connect. And so you see, Paul makes these connections to the upper story. When we go on to to find our connection with our whole sermon series here of, of Saul and David in verse 21, Paul reminds them, he says, The people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And here we start to get into lower story, story meeting, slightly upper story meeting, upper story. We have in, in Saul, someone who was given the tools to succeed, but he completely failed. It was not part of God's plan, but God said, I'll give this to you. But then Saul was eventually rejected because he just continually chose anything but God. He never connected it to the upper story, to what God was actually doing in Israel. David, for all of his imperfections, gave a solid attempt to continue to at least have his heart beat like the heart of God. He, as you read the Psalms of David, you see someone who, when he messes up, He is contrite. His heart is broken. And he says, okay, God, I need forgiveness. You never sense that in Saul in any real tangible way. David has that. And so we see then the connection as it keeps going towards the upper story. If you go to verse 36, it says, Now when David had served God's purposes, purpose for his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. David prefigures the true king who would come. Saul was the first king. David is the second. Solomon is the third of this united monarchy. And then it all falls apart after that. Although it's all falling apart up until that point if you really study it. But, but David prefigures the true king that was to come. Because it goes on. Paul continues in verse 37. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my friends, he says, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law 
of Moses. This message is for us today as much as it was for the people in Pisidian Antioch in Paul's day. And we have to ask the question, what is it that Jesus did that no one else could? And Paul gives us these three things among many that Jesus did. First of all, Jesus could forgive. Of course we can forgive uh, if we wrong someone or if they wrong us, but that offense is also against God. We can't forgive that part of the offense. Israel, as you look at their story, there's an awful lot of rebellion in their story. It's the opposite of God's desire. They're doing the opposite of what God wants. They're not connecting it to that upper story. They sin. And we live the lower story just like Israel did. We're living this out day in and day out. We make decisions about what is right and wrong. And of course, we sin. We do the opposite of what God wants. But we have forgiveness offered to us that Jesus' work on our behalf cancels out that sin. It says it's clean. And it means that our lower story, our missteps, our mistakes, and our miserable moments are not the whole story. There's something more there when we begin to connect to the upper story, and we can only do that with forgiveness as the first step. The second thing that we're told in the text is that Jesus provides freedom. Forgiveness leads to freedom. For our lower story to be redeemed and to have meaning, it must find that connection to the upper story, and this is the pathway from forgiveness to freedom. And, and our bond with God was broken by sin. What we're doing is repairing that, we're restoring that, by the work of Jesus. He's the one who puts that back together. But what happens is, let's not miss something crucial that happens. We can be forgiven, we can be provided this freedom, but then we hit the fork in the road that is freedom. Who am I living for and what am I going to do with this freedom I've been given? Okay, the slate's wiped clean, but now what am I going to write on it? Now which direction am I going to go? If you've ever watched a child learn to walk, they discover freedom, don't they? I remember our first child uh, when we had just moved into this uh, house in Indianapolis. And uh, she, when we moved in, uh, she was standing at the couch, as kids do, taking those initial steps with something. And all of a sudden, it's just like that. All of a sudden, she's walking on her own. And you watch a kid that's reached that stage where they walk or run, either one. And what do they do? They walk or run everywhere, right? This is why we childproof places, because they're going to try and use that freedom to go Anywhere they possibly can, whether it's safe or not, they have no idea what the difference is, and they're free. That's the fork in the road that is freedom. We have this option all of a sudden. Do I actually then continue to live for self, or does God take priority at this point? So forgiveness is not the whole answer. That's the start. Freedom is the next step where we have to make a crucial decision. We can't simply just say, oh, Jesus loves me and he'll forgive me so I can do whatever I want and then come back to that forgiveness stage. There is truth to that, but that's not how we're called to live when we're forgiven. We're called to live for Christ. We're called to live putting God first. And we recognize the cost then. Paul uh, will elucidate this when he gets to Galatians and writes to them. In Galatians three thirteen and 14, he tells the Galatians, these people he's just preached to, Later on, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Something different must happen in us 
when we're forgiven and when we hit the fork in the road that is freedom, recognizing that we want the Spirit to work in us, not to be powered by self any longer. Thirdly, we are justified. That is, simply put in right relationship with God again. And that's why that fork in the road matters so much. We're, it's, it's given to us as a gift. You're, you can now be in communion with God. And that price was paid so that you would choose that direction as the, the default position to stay in communion with God. Saul was given a tremendous amount of freedom to choose God. And what does he do? He continuously chooses himself. The best that Saul had to offer stays lower story. It's unredeemed. It's unconnected to God's salvation history and what God is going to do through Israel. It, it remains fairly meaningless. David had this freedom. If you look at him and compare him to Saul, and in his imperfection, yeah, he messed up. And he, he suffered the consequences. But even the worst sin that David committed, he considered redeemable because he went before God asking forgiveness and pursuing that path. And so we come back to the point that God's work for your, your best frees you to work for God's best. You see, in Jesus, we find that the long-lived lower story that we have already been living day in and day out meets God's upper story. And in Jesus, your lower story is given meaning. You and I are given the choice. If we've said yes to Jesus, that means we're forgiven. If you haven't, it's a good day for it. If you've said yes to Jesus, you've been forgiven, you're set free, you're justified and set on God's mission. So it doesn't just become about me and personal salvation, but about God's kingdom from that point on. Because now we're spirit-powered. Something different is fueling us forward. We're set forth on God's mission, living under the call of the true king on our true mission. God's best for you and for this world. Let's pray together. Father, for those of us who don't feel forgiven, will you come into this place? Will you give us the courage to ask? If you're sitting in this place and you've never asked for forgiveness, or it's been a long time, just put your hands out and ask God right now. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive me of my sins. For those sitting in the room that are standing at the door of freedom, wondering which way to go, Father, we pray that your spirit would come into this place and would empower us to walk down the road of a spirit-fueled, spirit-lived life. Not a life simply of self-fulfillment, looking like it points to you. Not a parody of the real thing, but the real thing. Father, give us, uh, uh, give us the ability to live into the justification that you've given us, that we can live in right relationship with you, in communion with you, as we live out the lower story, as we go back to work this week or to school, as we live it out in the home, in family relationships, in friendships, with our acquaintances, with our coworkers, our classmates. May we not only see your light, but be your light in this world. And direct people back to you, to that forgiveness, that freedom, and that justification that you provide. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.